0: And here we go, another Asbury sermon on getting drunk and stuff and wine and all these sorts of things, whatever. What a text to pick up. <laughs> just want you to know, I, I really appreciate that, that Jeff introduced me without going into the sort of good-natured ribbing that we usually do, because usually, if you've been here for other chapels and I speak, Jeff has a sort of way of roasting me before we get up to speech. I, I just want you to know the sort of things I put up with here. You know, Sunday... Sunday night with the Oscars that, you know, La La Land was introduced as winning the Oscar you know, to the world to let them know that La La Land actually had won the thing, only to find out that they hadn't. So here this stuff takes place, and Jeff texts me and says, I understand that La La Land was up 28 to 3 in the third quarter. <laughs> this is the stuff I have to put up with. Just want you to know. The burden I bear here. So if you have been around Asbury very long, you've heard me say this in chapel sermons. Certainly heard it from Dr. Tennant. That is that we live in one of the great eras in the history of God's people. Let that soak in. The folks sitting here in this room, or one of me standing, We are living, our life on this planet has been conducted, has been lived during one of the great outpourings of the Holy Spirit across the planet. And we think, man, would it have been something to walk through the sea with the people coming out of Egypt or be there when the law is given or when the, the temple was dedicated or walk in Galilee with Jesus? I mean, we live in a time really comparable to that. hundred years ago, most of the Christians on the planet, certainly Protestant Christians, lived in the Global West, what we now call the Global West. But now, after what God has done in, in over the last century, most of the Christians in the planet are in Africa, in various parts of Asia, South America, Latin America. Christianity very, very, very much become a non-Western religion because of the sheer numbers of where not just the gospel has been preached, but where it has taken very deep roots. There's a gospel message, but there's no gospel out of it being embodied in particular context. We make sense of it in in our language, in our customs, and the way God has built us. Some ways that people talk about this sort of thing that's happened where the the gospel has sprung up, taken deep roots around different parts of the world is that it's largely Pentecostal, or they would say Pentecostal-ish. Now, what is meant by that, either we we identify ourselves as Pentecostal, or in practice, uh, the the way we conduct stuff very much resembles the way Pentecostals would. Now, I would talk about that and say what you get from both of these groups, the Pentecostals and the Pentecostal-ish, is that they take their identity, their way of describing who we are and what God is doing among us, comes from the book of Acts. In particular, it comes from the the chapter we began to read today, the first 13 verses, in in Acts chapter 2. But that's how to describe yourself, that's how they vocalize it. Now, some of you will know that over the last several years, I ran a a global research project funded by the Luce Foundation where we did research in East Africa, northern India, Nepal, the Philippines, around the Caribbean, and so on, to try and listen and understand... How do these people in these places where God is doing these new things, how do they articulate their self-understanding? What, what is it to be us? Because it's got to be heard on their own terms. We heard again and again and again that they, when they articulated, they articulated in terms of the book of Acts, particularly Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, if you were one of the I guess, our ways of saying this, is Acts 2 really defines their DNA. This is where they find who they are, what it means to follow Jesus in their time and their context. Well, let's go to the text and look a little bit about what some of that DNA is. Now, when we get to this whole incident here with Pentecost, this stuff, first of all, I'd say, just doesn't come out of nowhere. I mean, if we just take uh, the Gospel of Luke and then the second half of that, the book of Acts, in Luke 3, we're told that Jesus would baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus says that these people will be clothed. His followers would be clothed with power from on high. You turn over then to the, first, the beginnings of the book of Acts in chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus tells these people, you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Then we get to chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit does fall on these people. Now, all of this stuff is to say, for Luke, this isn't just one thing among many. He's been building up to this right from the outset of his gospel. But it even goes beyond that because when you get to uh, what happens next, which we're not going to cover today, but Peter's sermon that springs out of what happens here, he says, God talked about this stuff a long time ago through the prophet Joel. Now, all that goes together, either tracing the way Luke gets us up and prepares us for this point, or the way Luke, through Peter, takes us back to the prophet Joel and says, this is not just some ordinary, everyday, average, just one thing like any other. This is something that God has prepared for, has led us up to, and brought it to this point, and sit up and pay attention. Luke's going to call our attention to that in the second way as well. You notice the description of what actually takes place here at Pentecost with the tongues of fire that our folks read about here and, and so on and so on, these sort of heavenly portents and cosmic signs and so on. Now, we know in Scripture that when God does a really special thing, that's often what accompanies it. Think about getting out of, uh, getting out of Egypt, the giving of the law in Sinai, the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem and so on, some of the events I mentioned earlier. If you go back and think about what was happening scripturally and what's talked about that, it's accompanied by these kind of very large, earth-shaking, visible signs of God's presence. And this is God's stamp that I'm here in power and this is important. So all of that stuff goes together to say, what's happening here isn't just, again, the ordinary, everyday, average thing that happened just like whatever happened yesterday. This is a a milestone, a marking point of God's actions among God's people. And then the Spirit gives them utterance. We'll talk about this whole tongues issue. I want to say two things to mark what we want to talk about, the significance of what's happening here with Pentecost. First of all, tongues provides the catalyst for a cross-cultural recognition, very important word, of God's activity. Right here, for all this stuff that God's marked out to say this is important, and we know this is the launching point. Barn doors are open, and the horses of the new covenant people of God are being let out. Right here. I guess that makes a good... I should have preached this in Kentucky. <laughs> Shouldn't I, Bill? Sorry, man. i down in Florida. Got to come up with something having to do with gators, I guess, instead of horses. Um. Didn't contextualize my sermon wrong. Contextualize it for the wrong campus. <laughs> right here from the get-go, from the very first moments when Jesus pours out the, the resurrected, enthroned Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit to empower God's people. The results are such that the work of God can be recognized across cultures. You hear the significance of this. You get down here to verse 11, and you got all these people that I appreciate you guys having to read this stuff so you can actually pronounce the names. It's like, man, I'm glad I'm not. I couldn't even spell it if I was from there. I'm glad I'm, I'm, you know, I'm from Georgia or something. I don't know. But it says here, they, they say in verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God, in our own tongues. There's a recognition that what God's doing is intended from the start not to be heard in one language. Built in from the get-go, this is God's design, God's purpose. This is the way God is equipping and building God's people. Okay? Still haven't got anything where I can get the gators out the door with this, but you know what I'm talking about. So tongues actually provide the catalyst for that. Right from the very start, we've got people uh, from the nations, not all of them, but a good bit of them here, who are able to recognize this is what God is doing through this resurrected and enthroned Jesus Christ now that the Spirit's been poured out. The second point here, and I'll phrase it much like I phrased the first one, tongues provides the catalyst for taking the salvation of God across cultural boundaries. I mean, that's the era we've lived in. The gospel seems to have crossed more cultural, and there's people who try to count this stuff. I'm not sure I can do this. But the gospel has crossed more cultural linguistic boundaries in the last 100 years than any other 100-year period in the history of the church. Probably the only thing comparable might be their the very first century. From all we can tell, right from the very beginning that they began to translate the Bible. Uh, the writing, in that point, it was the writings of the apostles into other languages, into Latin, into Coptic, into a whole bunch of other languages that if you study New Testament text, criticism and so on, there's names you wouldn't recognize. But very clearly, they began to put this stuff, the writings of the apostles, into the language of other peoples and other nations. They didn't waste any time. The stories we have, at least in, in, in church tradition, is that the apostles scattered and went all over what they knew as the known world. Uh, some of you, if you were here last Friday, we introduced uh, uh, Dr. Simon Samuel and his wife and daughter who are here from India. They actually trace their roots back to what they call a Thomistic. They, they think the first gospel that was brought there from the Apostle Thomas, the, the folks he's from in the south in Kerala, actually trace their roots back to that. That's, that's where they identify back to the folks right here. Quite amazing, huh? Amazing stuff. But tongues provide the catalyst for this. The early Pentecostals, we think, uh, we think of Azusa Street. Actually, there's this sort of thing of the reenactment of Acts 2 happened a number of places across the globe, the globe, the globe about the same time as Azusa Street. But the, if we, from what we can tell, the early Christians, have, after what happens with the revival in Azusa Street in, in California, actually took this and said, that's it. We'll just go to other nations, and God will give us their language, and we'll do it. And they, found out that it, it didn't work quite that way. But the point is, is that the impetus for this to actually take the gospel there, because what we find from this episode here with Pentecost is it belongs there. The gospel needs to take roots in those places. That's by design that people hear the word of God in their own language. I had uh, students when I, when I was teaching in Kenya, uh, students really from around the continent of Africa, and I, I had some students who were the people who did the Bible translation for their own people. And they talked about when they first began translating of their people saying, God speaks our language. And what a wonder it is to, see, to hear and to feel those, those really deep roots that God's not something outside. God's something that comes and lives and we find present right here among us. Have a, a, a very good friend. Hopefully he will be with us in September or and. Uh, October. It was a neighbor for us for many years, a Maasai man in Kenya. Maasai are known to be very resistant to the gospel, as sort of fighting warlike people and so on, and for a long time resisted the gospel. And he's one of the, the, I think, maybe even the first Christian in his whole area. He's now an Anglican pastor. It's a marvelous, marvelous church, but very dear friends of ours. And he will often say, um, and he says, this is what I tell people. He said, a Maasai is not truly a Masai until they follow Jesus as a Maasai. Now The point is, Jesus comes into our life, comes into our culture, and comes into our place. And there's stuff that really needs to be cleaned up. But there's also stuff that needs to be accentuated. God was here before the gospel ever got here. But to really, truly become... Maasai, who we are, doesn't mean we're better than other people. But to really be a true Maasai, you have to follow Jesus. That's God's intent when the horses come out of the barn. You can take this up to Kentucky with you. So from the get-go, God's intention, God's design is for Christian witness that crosses cultural linguistic boundaries. That's the spirit-inspired, the spirit-given, the spirit-equipped DNA of the people of God. That's what is supposed to be done with the gospel. That's the place it belongs. Well, what do we do? A couple takeaways from this that I, I just want to leave sitting here for us to just take with us moving forward. First of all, I think that this is the kind of thing we just give thanks for, that we live in, in just this amazing time when it is so easy. You know, we used to talk about missions at one point was west of the rest. What's happening on the planet today is everybody to everybody. It's just going every which direction. Let me tell you a couple of crazy stories, just things i have come across. And uh, I was thinking three or four years ago, six years ago, I was in New Zealand. I get a lot of other places in the world to teach because I know Kenyans there. I was in Christchurch because uh, one of our friends, good friends, uh, is, uh, runs the missions arm of the Anglican Church in New Zealand. A guy named Steve Mina. So I'm preaching in this Anglican church in, um, in Christchurch. Church, uh, and we meet in this kind of one separate building because the earthquake there, there certain parts of the building you can't go in now. In fact, the room we're in had this giant crack across the ceiling. You're kind of thinking, hmm. After the service, this man comes up to me from Bhutan. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, maybe you go into Publix and are looking at Heads of Lettuce, And somebody from Bhutan comes up and introduces himself to you. But this kind of stuff doesn't just happen to me any day. But I'm talking to this guy, and he's Bhutan. I said, Well, how how do you get from Bhutan down here to Christchurch, which is like the bottom of the world? Christchurch is the place where everybody does research in Antarctica, flies down to Antarctica. You can go out to the airport when I'm about to fly out. You can see these planes that are made to take off on runways, but also land on skids when they get down to the ice and stuff. I mean, it's that far south. Didn't see penguins, but we must have been close. He goes, well, you see, we're, we're, we, we live in Bhutan, but ethnically, we're actually nep- Nepalese, which is next door. But, you know, the Europeans just drew lines on the map, and so we're, we're ethnically Nepalese, but we live in Bhutan. Well, Bhutan came and found us and said, you don't belong here Nepalese, so they kicked us out and sent us over to Nepal. Well, Nepal, we get into Nepal, and they go you guys are Bhutanese, you don't belong here, and they arrested them, threw them into prison. So they're in prison, and what happens? Well, there's a Pentecostal pastor here. It's against the law to preach publicly in Nepal. So obviously the Pentecostal pastor looks at the book of Acts and goes out and preaches publicly and gets arrested. So what is the Pentecostal pastor doing? Hector can tell us. He's preaching in the prison, right? And all of this this big uh, group of Bhutanese folks come to Christ. Well, a couple years later, the United Nations uh, High Commission for Refugees gets these people out of the jail in Nepal and distributes them. Some to Vancouver, uh, some with the Netherlands. i trying to remember where the third country was. And another group went down to Christchurch. They were sent to four major cities in the world, groups of Christians that had nothing to do with controlling how the gospel got preached to them or how they got distributed across the world, But God had brought them to Christ, got them out of prison, totally all beyond them, and taken them literally around the globe. That's Book of Acts stuff. And it's still happening. It's interesting. We also had stories. We did research in northern India and Nepal about, you know, in Nepal, it's just these mountains and vast mountains and deep valleys. And there's a lot of stuff you just don't know. I mean, there's this valley goes up that way, and there's people up there somewhere. You know, we've seen them before. We've met them, but there's people up there. Well, f- these folks will come to Christ, and they'll send an evangelist up into the valleys, and they just go to the village and preach. Now, the, the, the typical story, and I've heard this confirmed by a number of people, different organizations that are in contact with this, um, they'll be stoned, they'll be beaten, whatever, Somebody in the village gets healed. The whole village comes to Christ. The evangelist stays there for six months and then takes a couple people in the village and goes wandering farther up the valley because they know there's some people up there too. Stories can go on and on and on. We live in what is really just one of these amazing, stunning times to be alive on planet Earth. And for that, we ought to really rejoice in just the amazing thing God does. It's God's spirit-inspired DNA And we really do need each other. Second thing I want to say here is the first spirit-filled, tongue-speaking Christians didn't get it right immediately. You know, something about being human is we like being comfortable with what we're comfortable. You know, when the spirit takes root in our own culture, it's like, yes, that feels right. But it feels so right to us, we don't want to recognize when it feels right to somebody else and when God begins to move there, because that's not the way we do it or the way we talk about it or whatever. But if you think your way through the book of Acts, you get to Acts chapter 10, and Peter ends up with Cornelius the centurion, who is described as a righteous and God-fearing man. Apparently, he'd become associated with the synagogue. But you get on to chapter 11, Pete's Pete's got some explaining to do. What are you doing with Cornelius? What, really? You go to chapter 13 and 14, you got Barnabas and, and Saul, soon to be Paul, out traveling among these people. And chapter 15, they got to go down to Jerusalem to help kind of explain. There's some explaining to do about really you're laying hands on these people and the Spirit's falling on these people to do. There's a learning curve for the first Christians who were there. Acts chapter 2, they were there. There's some learning curve. It took a while to get it. All of that is to say, you know, in our own time, we struggle with this. I'm part of the white people. We struggle because we were the people in power and Christianity and so on. But you know what? I, I've, I know Christians uh, from uh, Simon Samuel is here. He's actually a missionary from South India to North India. You know what the North Indians say? Those people from the South India, they don't let us really run things. They want us to do things their way. I heard that story before. I know I've been told at least of uh, churches that have come from Kenya into the Boston area. There's a number of of Kenyan churches in the Boston area. And they conduct their worship services in Kikuyu, which is the primary uh, ethnic language in Kenya, beyond English and Swahili, which are sort of crossed ethnic lines and so on. But they come this far away from the world, and they want to do their language and do their church in their own mother tongue because that's what's comfortable to them. Even though God's brought them across the planet for the sake of reaching a very, very boast Christian Boston area. It's just something about us that we want to do it this way. So I guess my encouragement is let's love one another. Please be forgiven. I need a lot of forgiveness. I want to take it over to another text. I'm teaching Acts and teaching in 1 Corinthians. Whenever, Miller, you see Miller preaching, go go look up and see what it is I'm teaching that semester, and you'll find out where the sermon's coming from. But I want to give final word to 1 Corinthians. You know, 1 Corinthians 12 14, Paul speaks to Christians who are divided over this issue of tongues and so on. And the repeated frame is, do what, speak only those things, and do only those things that are for the edification of the body. for the the building up of the Spirit-inspired, multicultural, cross-cultural, whatever label you want to put on it, figure it out. And it's going to hurt, and it's going to be hard work, and it's going to take a lot of patience, but do it. He says in chapter 14, since you are eager to the Corinthians, since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. May we be a a people that excels in using our gifts and using what God gives us to, to speak for the building up of the church.